Well, welcome to week two of our series of Understanding the Bible. Uh, last week, I guess I could say most of you were not here. <laughs> and so in your bulletin, uh, Rod has been so faithful in trying to get them out. There's an insert in there uh, for, for uh, taking notes today. But on the other side of that uh, insert are the notes from last Sunday already filled out for you. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, be able to help you catch up with that a little bit. But uh, we're starting this series because, again, uh, uh, mentioned last week that one of our core values as a church is biblical faithfulness. And uh, we, we value the Bible. We value the Bible as God's holy word and authority over our lives. And so in order to value the Bible, we need to understand this Bible better. And so figured this series would be good for us to take a look at, to go through, and, uh, and, and see what this book called the Bible is that, that we have available to us. So this is a series that basically has two primary goals. One goal is to take a look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates, and contrary to the onslaughts of modern culture, that the Bible is not just another book or, or mere ink on paper, but that it really is from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And another goal, second primary goal of this, is to motivate and to encourage and to challenge and inspire people to read the Bible like never before. If we value it, we'll read it. If we value it, we'll, 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 we'll not get away from it. We'll follow what it says. And so um, all these things coming together, and, 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 and it's, you know, it's things we'll learn this in this series. We'll be given some tools and some principles that will equip us to understand this book a little better. Now, I hope that you will be one of those who will be motivated, challenged, as well as encouraged, inspired to read the Bible like never before. Now, a little review last week, just to touch on some things. We talked about how if a, a non-contingent uncaused by anything else, self-sufficient, self-reliant, all-powerful, intelligent, always-existing, unique, good, and moral God, who loves us, were to write a book that it would be the most amazing book ever written. And I stand before you today, and without any doubt whatsoever in my mind, to declare that the Bible is that book, and that you can trust what it says. And that's what we looked at last Sunday. You can trust the Bible and what it says. We learned that the Bible is unique. It's in a class of its own. We learned that the Bible is accurate and we could trust what it says. We learned that the Bible is supernatural, natural, because it would know stuff, some stuff that only God could know. And we also looked at, uh, at the Bible and learned that it, was, it, it is transforming and it would radically change the lives of people. So if you missed last week's message, I, again, the outline is on the back there on your note insert. And I believe also the recording will be online on the website as well. You can listen to that. So let's look at this, uh, this, uh, this series here today on, uh, on the story of the Bible. And I want to kick off our time together this morning with three passages of Scripture. And we're going to be looking at a lot of different portions of Scripture. So uh, get ready uh, with your sword dr drills here and looking at stuff. But one from the Old Testament one from the Gospels, and then one from the New Testament as well, which the Gospels is part of the New Testament. And the first is from Isaiah chapter 9, which was written to God's people when they were going through some very dark and difficult times. You ever been there? <laughs> and these words were especially addressed to those from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
who lived around the region of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, uh, things are rough. Times are dark. The outlook is gloomy. Nevertheless, that, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the, the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses, we'll read verse 2 and then skip over to verses 6 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then the next passage is from the Gospels, John chapter 1. Now, I'm sure that pretty familiar with these words, most of us are. They're still very beautiful and very powerful as well. So John chapter 1, the first five verses, and then we're going to skip over to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So did you notice that John is declaring that the filled with glory and, and the end of darkness, that those things God promised His people through, through the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier, is fulfilled. It's fulfilled. The light has come, and now His glory fills the earth. And one thing we can be sure of is that God always keeps His promises. Always. Now for the final passage. These are some words that Paul wrote in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica in 50 AD. And these words that have encouraged believers have been read throughout the last 1,969 years, or if you're counting days, 718,685 days. Just so you know, we've been counting days since ransoms have been coming, so i got to give you in that mind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, starting with verse 13. And going on to verse 18. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from the gra their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray real quickly here. 
ask God to just continue to guide and direct. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for scripture. We thank you, Lord, for how it guides and directs us. I pray, Lord, that as we continue on through this time together, Lord, that you would just continue to speak to our hearts about your word and how it needs to be a primary focus in our lives. Lord, just pray that you, again, would speak to our hearts and thank you, Lord, for this opportunity together to hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, uh, the recently risen Lord, does something really awesome, and he does it twice. First, to a couple of guys on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Remember, they they are the two guys who were discouraged, did not believe the woman's story about the empty tomb and that Jesus was alive. In fact, they said that that very thing to Jesus as he walked along the road with them. And then Jesus said these words to to them in Luke 24. He said, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So as Jesus is talking, they arrive home. They ask Jesus to grab some dinner with them, and Jesus agrees, and when he breaks the bread and gives thanks, their eyes are opened. And they recognize Jesus, and then he disappears. In the Greek, it says, he non-visible became. (laughs) So he was no longer there. In uh, in verse 32 of Luke 24, it says, they asked each, uh, each other, Asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were, were not our hearts burning? Notice when their hearts burned. When Jesus opened up the scripture to them, and when they realized and understood what the scriptures were ultimately about. Then a little later in, in uh, Luke 24, He does the same with his disciples, but with them, Jesus went a little further. In verses 44 and 45, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So so that they would understand that all of the scriptures have one ultimate purpose. And one compelling theme. You see, it's here we see that, that crazy unity thing about the Bible. How despite being written by 40 men over a period of 1,500 more years, in three languages, on three continents, and yet there is but one compelling and unifying story, and that is the coming of Christ. In Luke 24, we see Jesus opening up scriptures, so his guys would understand it, and so their hearts would burn This morning, I'm going to attempt, in at least a small way, to give us an opportunity to open up our minds to the Scriptures. And hopefully our hearts will burn, and our faces, no matter how downcast, will be lifted up as we realize and understand that not only does the Bible have one ultimate, compelling, overriding theme, story, and purpose, but so does all of human existence, and it's the coming of Christ. So, let's walk through this and open up our minds to the Scriptures so we can see the story of the Bible and, and, and why this is so important. So in your notes there, you see, and that's kind of all introduction there, it's huge, but in your notes there, it starts off with the Old Testament. And here we see the Old Testament tells us that Christ is coming. 
Christ is coming. When you boil it all down, the coming of Jesus is pretty much what the 39 books, 929 chapters, 23,214 verses, and the 622,771 words of the Old Testament are all about. Depending on which version you read, you might have a few more words in there. But from the 39 books of Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament resonates with good news of great joy for all people. (laughs) A good news that is intended to lift up our faces and ignite in each of us a roaring living and sustaining, burning into hope that Christ is coming. We should all have that in us. And each day wake up going, wow, here we go. One more day to serve the Lord, and let's see if he's coming. (laughs) In Genesis, we see here that Christ's coming is revealed. Christ's coming is revealed. And that's the reason that Christ's coming is revealed in Genesis, because Christ's coming was planned before Genesis. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we read that Christ was slain before creation. Realize that it is before God created the world. It was before he formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. God already planned on sending Jesus. And Jesus' death on the cross was God's idea from before the beginning. Now in the beginning, God created the world and everything in it. He created Adam and Eve and put them in a garden paradise, in a perfect world, untainted by sin, corruption, or decay. And not only that, but they had an intimate and close relationship with God, as God walked with them in the cool of the garden. Just think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. Try to picture that. If you're able to walk in the garden with God, (laughs) with God, a place that was untainted by sin and corruption and decay. And they only had one restriction, one command, one job, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. And well, you know the rest of the story. (laughs) They were tempted, deceived by Satan. They blew it. They disobeyed God, and they sinned. Their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they hid from God and were booted out of the garden paradise. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we find what many might call this as the gospel in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And realize that even though man had turned his back on God, and sinned, God did not turn his back on man. Kind of like what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14, about King David being confronted by a woman from Tekoa uh, to bring Absalom, his son, back to Jerusalem and restore that relationship. Here's what she says. She says, like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. God does that. God allows and provides a way. And all of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water and spilled out on the ground. You cannot gather that back up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God reveals three things 
He reveals that Satan would ultimately be crushed. He also says the agent of this crushing would, would come through the seed of woman, Mary. And the victory over Satan would only be possible through suffering on the part of the crusher. So for centuries, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, was the only star of hope that God's people had. And they clung to it ever so tightly. Then after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, God gives his people another star of hope as he reveals that one day he himself would dwell in the tents of men. And then a little over 2,000 years before Christ, God called Abraham. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 12. In, in, in this call, God reveals that a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would one day bless all of the nations of the earth. And spoiler alert, that person is Jesus. And as God's first book to his people nears its end, God reveals in Genesis chapter 49 that one day a rest bringer would come from the royal line of Judah, bringing about a time of peace and great abundance. So in Genesis, the coming of Christ is revealed. Then in Exodus to Esther, in those books, we see that God prepares his people for Christ's coming. So God's, God's preparing his people. We read of the preparations for Christ's coming, and in these 16 books, God prepares his people for Christ's coming in at least five ways, at least five ways. One, God prepares his people by delivering them, <clears throat> by delivering them. As the book of Exodus opens, we see that, that God's people had become slaves in Egypt, and while in those shackles, they were taught two important things. One, that they needed a deliverer, and two, that they could not free themselves. And so God became that deliverer in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where it says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So God sees, God hears, God is concerned. He continues, continues on, he says, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of. And, you know, we serve a God who can bring us up out of. Remember that when you're in deep. God can bring us up out of. And he continues on and says, that land into a, up out of a land, that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God delivers them by working mighty miracles. You got the hail, the, the frogs, now river turned blood, death of Egyptians, firstborn, parting of the Red Sea. And through his servant Moses, bringing Pharaoh and his mighty empire to its knees, redeeming his people and winning their freedom. So God prepares his people by delivering them. A second way God prepares his people is by giving them his law. And understand, because God has, had delivered them, the Israelites were not their own. And therefore, God had the right and he had the power to expect something from them. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, we, we see these words. It says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God prepared his people by giving them uh, his law, teaching them about sin and obedience and his, his holiness. As his servant Moses brought down from thundering Mount Sinai on tablets of stone, his commandments. All these brought to his people. So God prepares his people by giving them his law. A third way God prepares his people in, in these books uh, is uh, by fulfilling his promise. By fulfilling his promise. 
Now, in the book of Joshua, we read of God's new leader conquering Canaan and establishing God's people in the land that he had promised to Abraham over 700 years earlier, teaching them that their God is a promise keeper. And throughout all the journeys that went on, so God prepares his people by fulfilling his promises. Uh, a fourth way God prepares his people by establishing the royal throne of David. By establishing the royal throne of David. And through David's blood into the bloodline, the true king would one day come. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, it says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so David's bloodline, a true king would come. And God prepares his people by establishing that royal throne of David. And then a fifth way God prepares his people is by building them a temple to worship in. Building a temple to worship in. God gives them a place and a system that allowed for sinful people to approach a holy God. They are able to come and meet with Him. So, from Exodus to Esther, uh, God prepared His people by delivering them, by giving them His law, by fulfilling His promises, by establishing the royal line of David, and then giving them a place to worship Him. Then we move to Proverbs, uh, Proverbs to Psalms. And here we see there's a great desire for Christ's coming. A great desire for Christ's coming. In the book of Proverbs, the desire is for perfect wisdom to be incarnate. This wisdom is found in Christ. In, in, in Ecclesiastes, <laughs> Ecclesiastes, Solomon exposes the futility of life without God. And had all three in great abundance, but still he came up empty. Solomon discovered that true and lasting meaning and, uh, and, and fulfillment are not found in anything under the S-U-N, but rather they are found in the person of the S-O-N, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So in, in the Song of Solomon, Solomon aspires for perfect love and commitment, which is found only in Christ. And uh, chapter 7, verse 10, it says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And in Job and Psalms, we have many direct references to the coming of Christ. Job longed for a divine mediator between him and God, and he looked forward to the coming of his Redeemer. He tells us this. He says in, in Job chapter 19, starting with verse 25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And then David, the psalmist, longed for the coming of, of God's glorious son in, Psalms, in Psalm 2, uh, the great parable teller in Psalm 78, the Davidic king in Psalm 89, and the royal priest in Psalm 110. King David longed for the glorious, perfect, and perpetual reign of the coming Messiah. And then the next section of the Old Testament is about the prophets who looked forward to Christ's coming with great hope and expectation. You see, the prophets lived during a time when God's people had turned their back on God and His Word as they bowed down uh, and worshipped false gods and idols. So turned their, their back on God and His Word. And the people and their leaders were rotten and decaying both spiritually and morally. I heard in the Sunday school class just overhearing them as they're studying an Old Testament uh, book talking about that same thing as well. 
how uh, needing, needing the people to come back and turn and his leaders to come back and return as well too. But all this to say in, in these things that wrong had now become right and God was then reduced. And you know, by the way, not a good thing to reduce the unreducible God in your heart and mind. <laughs> not a good thing at all. But they reduced, God was reduced to a distant deity and worship had become nothing more than heartless religion and simply pretending and performing. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, it says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are from, uh, far from me. That is a sad place to be. Justice was nowhere to be found, and the poor were greatly oppressed. And this growing corruption would eventually lead to the dividing of the kingdom, as brother fights against brother, which is never a good or pretty thing. And the fall of Israel and Judah resulted that, uh, that resulted as well, as God judged the nation with the sword of foreign conquerors. Assyria and Babylon came on down. The once mighty kingdom was no more, and it was during these perilous, dark, difficult, and God, ungodly times that the prophets looked forward to, and they clung to, and they spoke about with unwavering hope and expectation that the coming of a new and better kingdom. Isaiah, who is known as the gospel prophet, wrote in his 11th chapter of a kingdom that would be united in peace, united in harmony, and would include all people. He said that the lion would lie down with the lamb. In other words, all barriers and walls between people would be broken down. Everyone would be included, and natural enemies would become friends. And Isaiah uh, also wrote of a time when a new and better leader would rule over God's people. Isaiah chapter 32, verses 1 and 2 says, A king will rule in a way that brings justice, and leaders will make, their, make fair decisions. Then each ruler will be like a shelter from the wind, like a safe place in a storm, like streams of water in a dry land, like a cool shadow from a, from a large rock in a hot land. And then in chapter 53, Isaiah looks forward to the coming of Christ and the healing he would bring. He says in chapter 53, the first five verses, he says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet he considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So the prophet looked forward to a time when Christ would come and heal the deep and, and deadly wounds of sin. And also, too, when the good news would be preached to the poor, the captives would be set free and the prisoners released, the brokenhearted bound up and God's favor poured out. Then Jeremiah writes about the expectation and hope of a new and better relationship, uh, covenant with God. In uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, verse, starting with verse 31, he says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will, know, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So Jeremiah wrote about that, a new and better covenant and relationship. So the message of the whole Old Testament is Christ is coming. The Gospels tell us that Christ is here. Christ is here. The plane touches down on the runway. The last line is thrown from the ship to the pier. The car pulls into the driveway. All those things you could say about this. And suddenly all of the energy and emotion of anticipation now shifts to an eruption of joy. The band is playing, the cameras are flashing, the flags are waving, the husband embraces his wife, a teary-eyed dad holds his little girl he has never seen, a mother hugs her son who has become a man. We have, we have felt all these emotions before. Grandpa holding his little grandchild for the first time. <laughs> all those things coming together. It can be overwhelming. But the wait is over, and our loved one is here. John chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we have Jesus' birth. The wait that began thousands of years ago in the garden was now over. The crusher had come. The Savior was here. As Luke chapter 2, verse 14 tells us, And a great company of angels appeared in the fields outside of Bethlehem, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. In Jesus' ministry, the baby grew, became a boy. He laughed, he ran, he played with his friends, wrestled with his brothers, worked with his dad in the carpenter shop. And at the age of 12, he sat down at the temple among the teachers, listening and asking them questions. Luke chapter 2, verse 47 says, And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And the boy grew to be a man. And Scripture tells us in uh, verse 52 of Luke chapter 2 that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And at the age of 30, he began his ministry, and what a ministry it was. <laughs> He healed the blind, the lame, the leper, even raised the dead. He changed water into wine. He calmed violent storms, multiplied food. He spoke with authority and with divine insight into the heart of men. In fact, one time when some temple guards were sent to arrest Jesus and bring him back to the chief priest, they came back empty-handed. And the only response they could offer was, no one ever spoke the way this man does. <laughs> and it's still true today. And true, no one ever spoke the way Jesus did. No one ever died the way Jesus did. Betrayed by a friend, abandoned by his disciples, put through a, a mock trial, beaten, spit upon, scourged, weak and bleeding, forced to carry his own cross, huge spikes driven into his hands and feet. Yet on the cross, Jesus still thought of others, his mother Mary, and even his, his enemies, saying, Father, forgive them. He was innocent. The Jewish leaders knew it. Pilate knew it. Yet Jesus did nothing and said nothing to free himself. Remember the, uh, remember the hymn written in 1958 by Ray Overholt that says, He could have called 
10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Actually, Jesus could have called a lot more than 10,000 angels. Matthew 26 tells us in verse 52 through 54, Put your sword back in its place, he said. Jesus said to him, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So a legion was 6,000 soldiers. So you have 12 times 6,000, you got 72,000, not just 10,000, but yes, many angels. Jesus died and was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. Jesus is alive and death cannot hold our king. Do you feel that, the burn of that truth in your heart? Do you feel scripture just burning in you in that way? Those who are in Christ will likewise rise to be with him for eternity in heaven. Heaven will be our final place. This is not it. The victory has been won. The serpent has been crushed. Sin has been defeated. Death is destroyed. And the grave is destroyed. And because he lives, we now can have forgiveness and a hope and a purpose that can never be erased. So the Old Testament tells us that Christ is coming. The Gospels tell us that Christ is here. The New Testament tells us that Christ is coming again. Coming again. Jesus, the risen Lord, was with his disciples for the last time, and he told them and us about our job in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, throughout the book of Acts, and the letters to the churches. God's people, including us, look forward to His coming again. We look forward to that. Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. And he also wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And Peter adds to this, and he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, Peter tells us to look forward to that day and speed its coming. And John also writes, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, it says, Now, dear, dear children, continue in Him so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. <laughs> then also, too, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John tells us, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We, like they, should... 
should find it comforting and encouraging as we live in a rough and sometimes very dark, very difficult and wicked world, to set our sights on the future glory that awaits us as God's people. This, would, this, this world is not our home. We're, we're just passing through. Jesus Christ is coming again. Have your attention on that. So does your heart burn at the thought of his return? Can you not wait? <laughs> and finally, what was revealed in Genesis is then fully realized in Revelation. In Revelation, his coming is realized as God unveils for the apostles, uh, for the apostle John, actually, what Christ's return will be like. And that's what the word revelation means. It's an unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. For 22 chapters, God pulls back the curtain and allows us to see the glory of Jesus. And one thing becomes very evident as the curtain is pulled back. When Christ comes again, and he will, it will not be like his first coming, where he was mocked, where he was beaten, spit upon, pushed, shoved, crucified on a cross, clothed only in the precious blood that poured from his suffering body. Men will not beat him anymore. Men will not mock him anymore, and men will not do anything to him anymore. <laughs> when Christ returns, he will return in glory and will be clothed in power. And all the earth will see him, and on his robe and thigh he will have his, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And every knee in heaven and on earth will bow down, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the story of the Bible the story and centerpiece of all of human existence is the coming of Christ. Jesus himself said in Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, the ultimate chapter of the Bible, Behold, I am coming soon. And when we open up our minds, we see that this book is all about Jesus from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus, he's everywhere. In Genesis, he's the seed of woman. In Exodus, he's a Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the great high priest. Numbers, bronze serpent lifted with healing. Deuteronomy, prophet like Moses. Joshua, captain of our salvation. Judges, he's deliverer of God's people. Ruth, kinsman redeemer. Samuel, faithful prophet. Kings and Chronicles, true king of the nation. Ezra, faithful scribe. Nehemiah, rebuilder of our broken lives. Esther, he's our Mordecai. And Job, he's divine mediator. Psalms, he's God's glorious son. In Proverbs, he's wisdom incarnate. In Ecclesiastes, he's, he is our meaning. Song of Solomon, he is the bridegroom whose desire is for us. Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he's the branch of David. Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. Ezekiel, he's a rightful king. Daniel, his fourth man in the fiery furnace. Hosea, the one who takes back his adulterous people. Joel, stronghold of the nation. Amos, our burden bearer. Obadiah, lord of the kingdom. Jonah, a great foreign missionary. Micah, he's a savior from Bethlehem. Nahum, he's the avenger of his adversaries. Habakkuk, he's the victor of, over Satan. Zephaniah, he's the righteous Lord. Haggai, he's God's signet ring. Zechariah, he's the pierced one. Malachi, he's the son of righteousness. 
In Matthew, he's the royal king. In, in Mark, he's the servant of God. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the word become flesh. In Acts, he's, he's fire of his church. Romans, he's our justifier. In Corinthians, he's our sanctifier. In Galatians, our robe of righteousness. Ephesians, the grace that saves us. Philippians, the one to whom every knee will bow and tongue confess. Colossians, he's all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And Thessalonians, the soon returning Lord. Timothy, the one who saves even the worst of sinners. Titus, the one who pours out the Holy Spirit to wash and renew us. Philemon, he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Hebrews, he is both high priest and sacrifice. James, he is the tamer of our tongues. And Peter, he is our chief shepherd. And John, the love of God and the one that is in us and is greater. Jude, he is the one who can keep us from falling. And Revelation, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is everywhere, and he's everything. It's all about him, and it's all to him, and it's all for him. So do these truths just burn in your heart about this? All of Scripture, all that, that all of human existence has one hope, one purpose, one compelling, ultimate, overriding theme, and it's Jesus. Does that burn in your hearts? Christ is coming again. And there will be justice, and all will be new. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We wait for him. On that moment, that time, be reunited. What a day that will be. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. They're going to lead us in a couple songs. As they do, <clears throat> I want you to just be reminded again of who God is and what he has done for us. And be reminded of the good God we serve and that book he has given us. This book we need to know more about. Read more about. Fall in love with your Savior again through this book. If you want to respond in some way to the message and how God is speaking to your hearts, you can come to the altar and pray as we sing these songs.